The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Greg Adams. In the second half of my interview with Greg, we discuss his experience at Harvard and his experience of returning to college and starting his family while he and his wife earn master's degrees. Greg also discusses the seeds of Stabilitas and his partnership with Chris Hurst. Greg walks through many of their early decisions and the process of bringing a business to life and the difficulties associated with that. Greg talks through the decision to sell Stabilitas in 2020 and his path and journey afterwards. This is the second half of his story. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder owned company that specializes in handmade, one of a kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one of a kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're with Greg Adams. Greg, welcome back for the second half of your interview. Thanks, brother. It's uh, good to be chatting with you again. Awesome. So last time we talked, you were with your SF group and you were transitioning to Harvard. Talk me through that transition and what you were looking to do at Harvard. I mean, so I think I was shaped a lot by the financial crisis in 2000, 2008, right? I think... I wanted to have some independence that is like, I didn't want to necessarily be relying on a retirement or anything like that. I never really planned to be in the military for an entire career. I was open-minded to it. Uh, I really wanted to serve and feel like I'd done, you know, done my part for country and for everything that I think we're born into in the United States, you know, being, just tried to do my part. And so I think I saw at Harvard, I had a chance to do like a joint degree program with the Kennedy School and the business school at the same time. And, you know, that seemed like a great opportunity where the Kennedy School, I'd get to continue to work on an aspect of service and learn. It was the program is called an MPAID, so Master's in Public Administration in International Development. So heavily inspired by experience in Afghanistan. Uh, where I worked with USD, the State Department, I was open-minded about maybe going to, to state and business school where I thought, hey, <laughs> I don't know anything about business, but I will pick up some skills in, in network and experience to maybe, you know, chart my own way as far as determining a mission and building a team that could, you know, build something that would do good. So that's kind of what brought me to Harvard for grad school was, you know, Get, having a lot of luck and I think working really hard to put an application together. I think, you know, my story in the military was pretty good. I just done that village stability operations mission in Afghanistan, which is pretty unique and scaled from, I mean, I think we were like the fourth pilot for something like that. It scaled to like 120 plus site in Afghanistan. And so, you know, there was, I thought, a great opportunity to go find something else that met my need for service, 
met my need to do something beyond myself, but to do that in a new way that I wasn't going to be able to do, I thought, in the military. Something that you, you see in the military, especially in the special forces community, is like command time is pretty short. And so I also wanted to be involved in something that I was really passionate about for potentially a long time. So talk me through, like, when you get to Harvard and you start getting into the classwork and the coursework, where were you able yeah. to dive deep and really find things that nurtured that passion? I mean, <laughs> the, like, if you've seen old school, like, <laughs> going back to grad school, you know, like 10 years plus out was culture shock for me. I mean, it was really tough. At first, I, th I think the other thing going on, like in reason to get out to me was that was looking to have a family and, you know, I, I admire everybody that's done that with deployments, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, I'd finished up my military time before we started growing our family. And, and so, you know, had our, our first kid, my wife decided to to do grad school as well and work on a master's. And so, you know, we were working on three masters, starting to grow a family and really, <laughs> you know, the skills to, to learn in an academic environment, like you've got to kind of get those back a little bit. And so like trying to figure out how to study and prioritize and figure out what was important, learning econ, which, you know, my primer on econ wasn't the social department at West Point, it was listening to podcasts during the financial crisis and picking up a bunch of books, then trying to understand what was happening around us. Because this is 2011, so just a couple of years after the financial crisis. So when you started digging into the economics, what caused you to look into yeah. the areas that you looked into? I think I was really trying to understand a lot of my, one of my experience in Iraq and in Afghanistan, bouncing around to other countries, you know, is it, as a green hatter, like the, you know, I'd been to the Philippines, Thailand, <laughs> Bangladesh, India, stuff like that too. And so I think I, I was probably still trying to think through a bit of like, like counterinsurgency doctrine and stuff like that too, try to see how these things all mashed up and whether there was any reality there. And so this is like, you know, understanding some of the diplomatic and you know, economic piece to whatever dime, something like that. So institutions. And so, yeah, I was really curious. I, I think I probably thought, like we talked about this before, like probably thought that there were right answers for some things and people knew what they were talking about. And then of course, over time and kind of, you know, doing some of my own academic research at grad school, you realize like no, nobody necessarily has any of the answers for any of, the any of these things. And you know, you do your best <laughs> and try to figure out how you're going to move on. I think that's been like a slower realization than maybe I'd like to say, but like, I think I, I probably struggled with that at first at grad school was, Hey, what are the right answers for all these things? Cause like half the people in my, the MPAID class, that's an international development thing. Like they all had econs, master's econs, like a lot of them did. And a lot of them went on to do. PhDs in econ. And so, you know, I, I was just trying to figure out how to do the math and try to understand all the terminology. It was, this is where I met Chris Hurst, who was later, I mean, he's our classmate. He, he gave me a lot of feedback on my application process for, for HBS and the Kennedy School. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I had chat with him a bit. I connected with a bunch of other military veterans on campus. So Harvard's got a great military history and became involved in something called like the Harvard Veterans Alumni Organization and an on-campus kind of umbrella organization that brought together all these, uh, these clubs on campus. And so I think I was also staying close to the military roots and the people that I had some common history and culture with, because, you know, again, back to old school and Frank the Tank, like felt like a fish out of water at first. Yeah. So I went through it like a similar when I came back and I went to grad school in 08 and 09 and I had a background in comparative politics at West Point so you saw like we did a lot of comparisons of post-Cold War Europe and how uh -huh. different of those Eastern European countries transitioned from communism to a democracy and what was good what didn't go good and the different frameworks 
And then when I did my master's, it was the same thing as we were looking at a lot of the post-World War II scenarios of the Marshall Plan and rebuilding Germany. Yeah. Or looking at Japan post-World War II or looking at South Korea. And you kept trying to take those models and see if they were applicable to framing the world that we were looking at when we went to grad school, whether it was 08 for me or 11 for you, because you're trying to make sense of it to frame it. And then how do we react and engage the world that we have in front of us? Right. But how do you measure that? So, Cause, cause <laughs> yeah. It's so like, squishy. There's not, there's a lot of qualitative, but quantitative is much harder to get. Yeah. And so I think what, so we, we were at, so like what was happening in the MPID program was actually pretty exciting. Like there was this big move towards em- empirics in economics, like especially like microeconomics and basically, you know, doing things that look like randomized control trials where you're looking at like whether somebody gets a malaria pill or, you know, bed nets or something like that and how does that reduce like the transmission of malaria? And what does that do for saving lives? And so it's basically like trying to find really cheap ways to do um, interventions that could save lots of lives and, you know, lead to economic benefits, et cetera. But ultimately those tools were really similar to what you'd use for like a lot of machine learning models and data science, stuff like that nowadays. It's like, it's the statistics has kind of moved into every element of like the sciences and, you know, even political science. Right. And, uh, and so that was a really good time to be there for stuff like that. But I think, you know, what still strikes me is that I think I had the sense that people, you know, had the right answers for things like comparative politics, you know, almost, it's very clear that you're comparing, comparing some things, you know, I think I was like looking for answers and then not necessarily finding them. And then starting to go, like, I was given tools to go explore some of those questions myself, which is some of what I did. Like, my, you have to do, like, a master's thesis at the Kennedy School. And, like, I did an empirical study where I went back to Afghanistan and I got data from all 398 districts at the time about violence. And so I, I took SIGACs and I paired them with, like, development spending from the CERT program and <laughs> looked at how and if it reduced violence over like four or five years from like uh, 2009 to 12 or 13, something like that. So I don't remember the details, but that gave me some confidence that, oh, I think that there's room for some innovation around how we collect data on this stuff. And there, there could be a company that, that did some of that for, I, I think I thought I would go you know, one day sell some software to maybe civil affairs or something like that. It's totally not the route that I ended up going in, but, you know, basically give better insights for commanders on the ground about what works. I think we were all forming our own na- narratives for all these things, you know, while commanding people downrange. Because so, prior to that point yes. in the nineties, a lot of comparative politics was based off of polling and polling questions to try to get the feel uh-huh. for the atmosphere of a population. And sometimes they would go to these rabbit holes about like, are you asking the question in the right way that you're not 100%. influencing the answer? And so by going the route that you chose, you're trying to eliminate uh, a source of error or a source of unknown quantity that rather than doing polling and getting false positives, if I can go straight to the data, maybe that gets me closer. Yeah. If you can go straight to the data, you know, what insight, you'd still be asking why. So you'd follow up with like polling questions, things like yeah. that to try to understand some elements of why. But yeah, yeah trying to find like one variable pick on everything and it is causal was something that I was trying to do or have gather some tools on. And I mean, that was a lot of fun. Like it was the first time, like I wasn't, I didn't do computer science at school, right? Like that was enough <laughs> <laughs> whatever we were doing when we had to build web pages and whatnot, like that was just something I looked to, to get done. I mean, I enjoyed it, but then it would be like, Oh, I got to prioritize, like my shoes are not polished. <laughs> so I need to get to intramurals or whatever. So, you know, I think I found myself like <laughs> coding until 
the next day over and over again. And I'm just like, this is pretty, pretty cool. It basically gave me some foundation for just understanding statistics and like how some software development works and things like that. So that was awesome. That was like really getting to work on a thesis was like one of my favorite thing at grad school. So yeah. Talk me through graduation and where you were headed next. So they, there's, so I was a, since I was a joint degree student, like I had my first full year at the Kennedy School. Then you go to the business school, which is, I mean, it's, you're on the Harvard campus, so it's plenty of rarefied air and whatnot. But the, the sections that you put, so they put you in these groups of like 90 people at HBS that are called your sections. And you have a section made to come from all different walks of life. My, my section had four, three other military veterans. One had been a SEAL, you know, army ranger and a pilot. And so, no, and a CA guy too. So like, there were a bunch of us that were a little bit older and that helped us, I think. I mean, it just made a more comfortable environment. More people could relate to your stage of life and kind of some of the things that you were sacrificing going back to school and the change that you're dealing with. Also, a lot more people had families at the business school. But, you know, so graduation, eventually, like after, <laughs> you know, doing the, the business school years and kind of look, looking at consulting and banking and stuff like that. Like I did a banking insure, in, banking, a, a banking summer with, where I went back to Chicago. I stayed with my RTO, who is now in the FBI, which was like a blast for that summer while I was away from family. But ultimately coming up on graduation, like I decided like, oh, I, you know, I, I came to grad school to try to find a way to chart my own path and build something. And so that was kind of like the time to make it happen. And so, you know, I came back with Chris Hurst to, you know, we built a relationship over years at school and decided it was, we were going to go all in on uh, trying to build a company that, again, the initial idea was to like take some of this research I was doing and build software around it. But like we quickly realized that I think trying to sell to, I think government, I didn't want to live in DC is like big piece of what it came down to for me it was like oh so we're gonna we're gonna sell to we're gonna sell to people in the, the private sector and we'll go figure out whatever that is you know coming up on graduation i think it was like a lot of excitement for trying to build a new company but also being pretty nervous because it was like all right i've got <laughs> you know a little bit of runway i'm gonna take some money out of investments that i had and get a fund this thing initially and you know Asked Chris to put in a little bit money to do the same. He was at something called Mercy Corps. So it's a large nonprofit. It goes to some of the hardest places in the world. And, you know, we came up with the founders agreement that how we we're going to go forward, put a company on the books and started contracting some software development for like this mobile app that would kind of, kind of somewhat expired by a blue force tracker for everybody else, but just like a way to share what your location was while traveling to dangerous places in a private way. Have like this panic button stuff like that kind of seems pretty rudimentary now but it was like the best way to to show what we were trying to build and so you know back to graduation nervous excitement you know the air of graduation there is pretty excitement exciting we had no rain at the kennedy school or, or business school it wasn't <laughs> like west point graduation <laughs> we were being blown sideways across the plane and i remember that you know, whoever they had reading off names like had phenomenal pronunciation of everybody at Made your name sound really good while you're walking across the stage where I carried, I carried Will, who, dude is a tank, man. He looked like the Michelin man at birth. So I was like 10 pounds coming into the world. And uh, so, so, you know, two and a half or three years later, like, just remember standing in line and my, like, biceps and shoulder burning from trying to hold him up. <laughs> so, like, don't drop him going across the stage. So, yeah. But, you know, got the diploma and then. Enjoyed some time with family. I was like, all right, now I got to go figure out how to pay bills again. So, yeah. What was the learning curve of that whole process? Whether it was building that Steve. like kind of founder's <laughs> agreement with Chris yeah. to like even knowing, because it's one thing to know the steps and then mm -hmm. to, to try to make them happen. Where did you go to even know the steps of how do I get funding? How do I get money? How do I get these resources? Because a lot of the stuff yes. that available now was just starting to form in the time frame that you were at. Yeah, I think, you know, having, 
after the military experience, I think I was convinced that you could do anything, like especially if you're doing like this VSO mission where there wasn't really a whole lot clear about what we were supposed to be doing and how it was supposed to work, you know, because we were just in a village alone, unafraid. Like I had two, two teams ultimately that were, were coordinated to get that one done, but it didn't think, I didn't think I had a lot of resources. I think like in hindsight, like having a whole bunch of motivated, good, reliable people, the hard thing about building a company is like, you got to go find that yourself. You got to go figure out how to build a product yourself and make sure you're solving a problem that is going to be valuable to customers. And so it was now again, reading a bunch of books. There was something, Harvard has the iLab. So it was like their entrepreneur hub that had just opened on the business school campus. And I'd been kind of floating there. There's a fifth group that started a company there. One of my MPAD classmates has started a company there. And so, you know, Chris and I hunkered down there for a few months that, that first summer. So, you know, I think rent was paid through, I don't know, August or something. And so stayed until <laughs> we'd used up all the rent that they paid for, you know, living in, in Cambridge and then used it, the iLab to get things moving, met our startup lawyer and pitched to a couple of, of programs like Techstars has something called Patriot Bootcamp, where, you know, they're just looking at military founders and trying to give them an on-ramp into entrepreneurship and some mentorship. And so I went to an event that summer that was in, that was summer 2014 in New York City and Taylor, Matt, oh man, I butcher his last name, Mackle, I want to say Macklemore, but Matt, the Taylor helped us out with right, just doing a startup pitch there and seeing other startups. And you're just like, oh, gives you some confidence that these people are like me and they're doing this. And so kind of no excuse for not figuring things out as well as getting some of the resources to, you know, figure out exactly what steps you should follow. I mean, you find that there are no like clear steps, but there are some things that you really don't want to get wrong and getting an initial network for advice on those things. So I think we bumbled forward. It's just like you get, you've got to make decisions and move forward is something we talked about earlier today. You know, we are doing the same and you make a lot of mistakes. It's a piece that's really hard about entrepreneurship. Some of those have like economic consequences. And so you just know that you can't sit in one place because no matter what, you're burning time. And ultimately, you know, that's the one thing that we've, <laughs> the one precious resource that we don't have much else. So you just got to go. So from the initial concept of Stabilitas to the really the product that you brought for the initial mm -hmm. offering, how much did that change? How much did that evolve? It ch changed massively. So the initial concepts that we did go talk to civil affairs folks and, you know, I probably I helped work on like a revamp of us, like the counterinsurgency manual, I think. Went back to Leavenworth and gave a talk, went to down to Bragg, talked to civil, some civil affairs folks. And it's like, I don't know how we're going to build software that like, yeah, military is trying to figure out plenty of things. Like, I'm, I don't know how we're going to build software for these folks. And yeah, so we built out this panic button app that would allow like some private share of location and like basically breadcrumbs of where you've been so somebody could find you. The, we started showing that to security directors at, at schools, as well as like figuring out how to talk to security directors at large companies. So like after 9-11, a bunch of companies had invested in security for their employees, especially like expats or and stuff like that. And so, you know, through having to travel to Afghanistan, like I got to know our, our security folks. So like the one at Harvard at the time was like former SAS guy. And so, you know, we hit it off and he'd give me like harsh and candid feedback and what we were building and just kind of give us a new direction. I wanted to be, to be building something that was, you know, solving like Stabilitas comes from truth and stability or security. And, you know, that was the concept was to try to give better insights again about what's happening on the ground. I knew I wanted to do that through by basically reading newspapers, things like Wikipedia, be able to, and Twitter, be able to bring that information onto a map for commanders and put it, you know, next to their people. 
right? So the panic button app was just like, where are my people? And then we need to do this big, you know, data powered machine learning thing. But we started to see that there was an interest in not so much for universities, but with global companies where they had, you know, they had their people moving around, they had supply chains, they were paying for like risk information already through, you know, ultimately what became some of our, our competitors but that were using human analysts that were reading the news in countries all over the world and trying to aggregate them. So we saw an opportunity to aggregate using statistical methods, but, you know, we called everything big data then, but it's just machine learning to summarize the news and put it on a map next to people. So, you know, it was customer interviews and refinement of a user experience over, over years by just talking to customers that we found that we knew that they had a competitive, that we knew that they were buying something similar to what we wanted to build. We thought we could build something better that was more real time that wasn't dependent on those analysts to read the newspaper. Like we could just pull in the newspaper automatically and again, put it on a map next to your people. For you personally, that was the opportunity. for you personally in your relationship with Chris, how much did you, the two of you grow in this process of building out and making Stabilitas a viable product? I know it grew a lot. I mean, he, so we, so around August, um, again, moved to back to Seattle, moved back to the house that had been in before we left for grad school. So you know, I lived up in Seattle for part of the time. So I was deployed all the time. I just <laughs> had my wife closer to family and then I'd just get up really early and drive down to Lewis. But so we moved back into the same house, like Chris is crashing in the basement with us when he was up here from, he was still wrapping up his time at, in Mercy Corps. But, you know, we'd get up early in the morning and get like, go do lake swims in Lake Washington. So he was, you know, army diver and all that good stuff. And, and just trying to stay fit, motivated. But we spent just a massive amount of time together. Especially driving back in Portland, I think we thought we would sell to Mercy. We did try selling product to Mercy Corps at first. They also had, like, they were trying their own kind of venture incubator. And so we're trying to help us out there, but we never, you know, further from them. Talk, talk to the general counsel who's worked for, he'd worked in a White House staff before. And it was just like trying to get all this inside and whether we'd sell to the State Department and, you know, the Peace Corps or something like that to, uh, to give them these data insights. But, you know, ultimately we found the first customers that we were selling to, were commercial customers, especially since we weren't in DC. We were, you know, kind of running up and down the West Coast. And, you know, Chris is a, he's a great salesman. Like he's got a lot of skills that I've got, I feel like I've got some of them I could do, you know, some sales, but he's like a very naturally gifted salesperson. And so, you know, I had, I was good at some elements of planning and trying to, you know, figure it out a kind of a roadmap for us. and helping bring on some of the, the initial technical skill. He was really working hard on doing some of the initial sales. And, you know, we pitched together to investors because we feel like, hey, we're running through the money that we both set aside really fast. <laughs> like, like we, we need to get some more. And we decided to do like a, a Techstars program. Patriot Bootcamp been helpful. You know, it's a marriage, like starting a company and like, like in, in so many ways. And so I couldn't think of a better partner than Chris to start something with. Love the man. The, just like a marriage relationship, you have ups and downs. Like there are good times at bad. And, you know, we both have strengths and weaknesses. And so I just really thankful to have met that human being and shared, you know, some of, some of that adventure with him. Like we, we still talk like multiple times a week. He's still, you know, one of my closest friends for sure. And. Yeah, we had to grow a lot to, to make a business do anything. Because there was, there's a lot of room to grow that could start in a business. With every business that starts up, there's always that point of inflection. Like, can I continue to grow? Is the market that I'm in, is the product that I yeah. have, I reached the limit unless I expand the scope of the project or I get a, a dramatic infusion of cash? Talk me through that decision with Stabilitas. Yeah, well, I think so. We had like just a good deal of success. We were the first company like ours in the market that like saw what was happening with Florence 
machine learning, you know, ultimately, like we found that like the need for analyst reports in, you know, in the security function at global 2000 companies, like that's not a huge market, right? We had to expand into other markets. So we built them what's called mass notifications. So the ability to send text messages to you know, hundreds of thousands of people, which like our first large customer had 120,000 employees all over the world. So having to build that tech, I think it, it took us somewhat off the, like our differentiated roadmap a little bit, but we were trying to expand our markets and, you know, that costs you some time. I think we were really deliberate about the decision, but I think it, it was a struggle in many ways to, to tell, like to give people the insights on, you know, what was big about our idea. So, you know, now that we're looking at, you've seen chat GPT in the news, like large language models and machine learning, like everybody's kind of familiar with it. But again, when we were starting, we, everybody referred to things as big data. And so I think we, we went to a market that overall, again, for us was small. There was like generalizable tech that was coming along. And so we, we had to either try to find a way to move into something more generalizable, like in like supply chain analysis and, you know, in other aspects of infrastructure, or, you know, we were going to have to find a strategic that we fit well with. And so, you know, come 2020, we were busy raising money on, you know, this vision for going into the supply chain, you know, between COVID and all sorts of other, you know, considerations, like as far as fundraising was going, like it was the right time for us to, to sell the company. Like we found, we'd been working in a partnership with a large mass notification provider on the U.S. so that there were two really big ones. And so, you know, we ran a competitive process and found the best outcome for everybody involved, especially employees, the team that we built and they were really proud of. And, and so we sold in August of 2020 because that, you know, the tech needed to go really to be involved in government, kind of the initial place that we started, but like local government across the U.S. needs technology like this. And with the acquirer Onsolve that bought us, like they serve the majority of the Amber Alert system in the United States. I'm in King County, Washington right now. So the Amber Alerts come from uh, Onsolve and it seemed like the perfect pairing of like trying to give this critical information to people that are working in emergency operations centers and that are sending alerts to save you know time, money, and lives ultimately. Now, some people are serial entrepreneurs and they love the process of creating a product, building a product that can run on its own and then selling it and mm -hmm. moving to the next big thing. What was it like for you that this baby that you invested in um, and you helped nurture and grow <laughs> and develop yeah. and then now it's somebody else's and what was that like? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really hard. I didn't start the company to go sell it. So I started the company to, you know, build the things that I, like having a mission and understanding that mission can have an impact on society and other people is, was something important to me. Building a team. So like, I loved all the teams that I worked with in, in the military. I think, you know, my, my special forces team in particular was like a high performing team and like just looking for that. Like, I know that I want to be around other people and. I don't think it's necessarily about being in charge, but it's, it is about building culture intentionally to where that you're working towards a story together and a mission together. Like that is a sweet world to, to live in. And that's what I love when you, you get like the chemistry, right? Amongst people and you're working towards a common goal together. Of course, you got to find a way to pay the bills through that. But when those three, when those things come together, I think that's what I'm really looking for. I'm not necessarily looking for like building something and selling it. I like to build businesses that are sustainable and like that I feel are making an impact on a problem that is important to me. And so I am working on starting a business again now, but like, I don't like the serial entrepreneur thing isn't necessarily like, I'm, I'm not trying to meet an architect. I'm just trying to solve problems that I care about. Um, in, in many ways, like 
what I was doing in the military, just trying to build a great team, be a good person to work with and, you know, make a difference in the lives of employees as well as customers. Right. What was it like going to the next job, the next opportunity after selling Stabilitas and then for a period of time working yeah. with Unisolve and then moving on? What was that like? Onsolve. Yeah. Onsolve. Sorry so about that. it was, I mean, it was really weird <laughs> because like, okay, you're like selling a company is really hard. I don't know if anybody's figured out how to do this really easily, but going through that process is a grind. Like, so when selling, I spent a, so we've got a guest room in the basement. I basically moved in there. So I had a deployment in the basement of my house and uh, like I hardly saw my family for, for a few months. I swear I was just in meeting board, talking to investors, telling them why this was the right time, uh, as well as like trying to make sure our diligence is good. I'm really proud of the process that we ran. I got to know him, know my lawyer really well. <laughs> We're good friends now. That's funny. I grabbed drinks with them this week. Naval Academy guy. So we also like watch the Army Navy game together. But the, uh, you know, the, when you get to like after just like running that hard and having so much at stake, then it's done and it's, oh, what happened? Now I don't have this like clear thing to, now I'm not setting the vision for the company. Like I tried to influence it. Like it, you had this C suite position at the acquirer. You're trying to influence the vision, but, you know, it's not, on you and it's not necessarily what anybody else that, that bought you was, was looking for. And I think, you know, I saw the good match of technology and, you know, mission for the company. I thought it was a place that I could stay for a long time, but ultimately, you know, after escrow cleared, it was time for me to move on. And, you know, a bunch of the Stabilitas employees are, are still there. Like we brought some fantastic people to the company. And so. You know, I, I think they ended up in, in a good place. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> at the same time, like, do you feel like you're being fully utilized anymore? No. So you got to find a way to, to move on. So I started trying to figure out what's the next problem to solve and how to go solve it and who to do it with. Now, is it as fulfilling to, to dabble and to put in feedback into the, these organizations, but not being in charge sure. because you can have a larger impact across a, or correction. You have a smaller impact across a larger breadth of companies. Yeah. Well, I think I was trying to do that next, trying to experiment with that a little bit next. Cause like, it's definitely a lot less stressful, not running a comp company. You can like, you have all these at a startup, especially if you're venture back, you have a, lots of life and death experiences for the company. Like, you know, you, you talk about like, how Chris and I worked together and, you know, we had another co-founder, Steven, who was, you know, a, he's a military guy as well. So that was a core piece of our, our early trust, but you know, there's so many times there that, you know, you're worried, you're looking at how much runway you have and okay. An investment round is supposed to close, but stuff always is late or, you know, there's an issue and it's high drama and you're like concerned about what big payroll in X number of months. And so there are lots of times where, you know, Chris, St Steven, like we didn't make payroll for ourselves to make sure that we had money to pay other people. And, you know, we had to go look at our wives and our families and say like, Hey, <laughs> are we doing the right thing here? The, yeah. So you sell like, I, you get some relief and maybe put some money back in the bank account and go live on to, to find another day or go pursue something great again. So, I mean, like it, like, so I very much remember the hard times and trying to be very deliberate about what to do next. I went to another company that is in the web three space, I'll call it. So just a tax solution for crypto and tried working as a chief operating officer, like ultimately yeah, I think I do like setting the vision and I like building the team. And so recently moved on to trying to experimenting with my own company again and trying to build that from zero to one. And that's what I'm currently digging into now. Try, trying to pull back just a hair, the experience 
of being in the military and having a small team and high stress with adrenaline, with all kinds of positive and negative feedback, is that comparable to what you had with Stabilitas? Just different. And so now you're looking at your employees, you're looking at your family, but you're getting all this like it's routine feedback. Some of it is extremely positive and reinforcing. Hey, we just met a, a key metric or we just got a key investment round complete. And then the other ones, mm-hmm. they're reverse. And so it's that combination that's similar. Did that feel similar to your experience in the military? It feels so very, yeah, it feels very similar. I mean, especially on a, an SFODA, like, like you, your teammates get you kicked off the team, right? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you're not, you know, you're on first name basis with a lot of these guys. Like I'm so very similar. And, but that's some of what I'm pursuing too, right? Like for me, like, again, being on a high performing team, having everybody aligned on a mission and just like being with people that you can trust because they're there for the right reasons. Something really cool is that like at, there's a special type of like early, early employee at startups. Like they're looking for some of the adventure, but they really care about the mission and why the company exists. You know, I think they in the long run, they may be looking to make money, but that's not actually what really motivates them. Like they're somewhat there for the adventure, for solving a hard problem or, and you know, these people come along and for some of that, and they put a lot of trust in you and you don't want to let them down. Just like, you don't want to let your teammates down. So many similarities. I think that the difference with the family is eye opening. <laughs> Just like you don't bring your family down range on a deployment. Right. And so in many ways you feel like your family is on and when you're running a startup. And, and that was the last question I was going to ask is as you age, as you get more experience, the motivation. Well, you got to remind passion. me of my age. <laughs> I know you're in the same boat, man. We're, none of us yeah. have beaten father time. So, well, and that's what I would say is like the first couple of firefights, they're fun. They're exciting. And then there's a point where like, holy crap, I almost lost somebody or I almost didn't come home. Yeah. Is yeah. that the same way that at some point with starting up a new company and trying to, like you talked about, remembering some of those hard moments, long hours. It's like, as a 40 year old guy, am I willing to put in those rip it and Mountain Dew nights as a 40 year old? It was still still something when I was running back to, I found those rip it's on the, on the economy in, in some shops in Kabul, which was like in 2014, back there doing research was (laughs) hilarious, but yeah, you just made, you just put a big smile on my face. You know, I think I work really hard to keep things in perspective that it's not really life and death. Like there's like, like failure was not a good option for us to start up, especially as having risked so much and put so much into Stabilitas. Like, you know, we, we had a good success and that puts us in a better place to to do whatever we're doing next, you know, I'm self-funding the initial, the initial company right, right now. It, it isn't life in death with the startup the same way. Again, you know, I love the military in, in part because I, like, I wasn't necessarily comfortable with the, those risks getting a little bit older in, in my mid thirties, you know, watching one of my Charlie's like push, push a charge towards a landmine that was very for us. You know, or trying to dig some up with a, with, you know, a knife, like picking up IEDs and stuff like that didn't look like, a, like that's just a matter of time and some of that stuff and luck. So the, they're not the same. I think the stakes feel similar in many ways. Like the pressure's there, but I am reminded that, you know, you're not getting shot at. And I think it's good to keep that perspective. Like, all right, not getting shot at. Like overall, it's not, I don't just say it, it's just money. It's just our time in lives. But like you do make a lot of mistakes like at a startup and you've got to figure out how to move forward. Like some of the mistakes that you learn from is how you find the next innovation or the next customer or the idea that you need. You know, you don't get the lives back and you don't get, you know, injuries back in the military. And so I think, you know, you got to take a breath and, keep things in perspective there. And I try to, I don't know that 
you know, the heart rate or the anxiety is necessarily like, I'm not always perfect with that. I think the best thing you can do is similar recipe for the military is just get them PT and make sure that you're staying in physical shape and have great people to talk to, like, and try not to feel alone. Like, I, I think another thing on the entrepreneurial journey is that it, it feels pretty lonely. So having a, a really good co-founder and Chris was, and uh, Steven was really important to me in my sanity. And it's important now going forward. It's probably, while starting some by myself right now, I call Chris a lot. So last question before we, we wrap it up or second to last, actually. Reputation. After your time with the special forces and the role that plays in that organization, the role it plays within our class, and then the reputation that you built and you kind of nurtured with, with Stabilitas, how much of that plays into what you're trying to do now? Well, I think that's an expected question. I think I mean, we're always thinking about it, right? Like I think you can't be afraid to make, I what I tell myself is like, you can't be afraid to make mistakes and you want to move forward honestly. Like I think, you know, I struggle sometimes with trying to you know, whatever, talk about a company or like even be on a podcast. Like a, I'm totally an introvert. And so this is like, like I appreciate the opportunity. It's like hard at the same time, right? The, the re reputation, I mean, is really important to me. Like, like we, we are the company we keep, but I really believe that like, I want to be around people that can be trusted. So, I mean, reputation comes down to, can you trust somebody? You know, I think whether it was somebody I tied in on a rope with at West Point, you know, as a climber later or as a platoon leader or XO or, you know, as a, an SF team leader, like, and now as a startup founder, like you want people to be able to trust you with resources and their time. And I think I've worked hard to honor that. I like, I don't know if I'm, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. I've tried to be honest in how I work with others and, you know, in, in the startup world, maybe too honest sometimes, like you're telling people things that they don't necessarily want to hear about a market or something like that, or about a product. I think, you know, that, that summer in where I did investment banking, getting to, to hang out with my RTO, who is, you know, he was 18 or 19 when I was 22 as a platoon leader, I think was pretty special. And I, I think you know, I'm glad to have that relationship. I'm going to meet up with some of my teammates from 153, 1223 here in, in April. So, I mean, I hope I continue to keep that trust with people. You know, it feels like a big question because like, I don't 100% know like what a lot of other people think about me. I, I, and so that's, again, why I'm nervous to, to even be on a podcast or whatever. But, you know, I think... Going back to our reunion, it was nice seeing that, like, oh, these are my people. I don't know if I always felt like while at school that, like, I don't know if I felt like I 100% fit in. I felt like there were a ton of smart people there and I was wondering if I measured up. But I, I feel like at the reunion, the 20th, like, definitely felt a bit more like fit in and felt like we, we all had common values. I think we all, you know, had so much different experiences, but like we had some core common experiences that just made me feel a lot of love for everybody that was there. And, uh, and that, you know, as a group, we'd done some of what we came to do and done our part for country and each other. And, uh, and so I think still trying to do that, obviously, and uh, I hope we all are, I'm sure we all are going forward. So I don't know if that answers the question at all, Joe. Well, I was setting you up a little bit. Okay. For the last one, because it goes back to <laughs> you said the last one like ten times. Oh, probably because <laughs> it's the idea of struggling well, because yeah. we can't all accomplish the mission, but how we hold ourselves, how we treat other people, mm -hmm. because that's basically life. Whether you're going through yeah. West Point, whether you're going through your military service, whether you're in the civilian world working at a company or running a company, there's a lot of things you can control. And there's a lot you can't, but the one guaranteed thing you control is that you struggle well. 
And yeah. I, you were bouncing around a little bit, but you were hitting the high points there that how you did your job as an officer within the SF, within the military, as a cadet at West Point, how you struggled well matters, not necessarily the outcome. Yeah, I, I, that's a much cleaner insight than <laughs> whatever I was saying. I, yeah, I think, you know, being trustworthy is important to me. I, you know, the, well, struggling well, like, I don't know, I always have struggled well. I was like, as, as an individual, I think I had to look to others for guidance, you know, co-founders, in, advisors, and you know, just trying to make it to the next day. And there's so much that's emotional. So trying to control your emotions and, you know, get yourself to a more rational place or get some time. I mean, there, again, like with the startup, there are a ton of failures. I think, you know, we can, like, it, it was, we had a good outcome, but it wasn't clear that we would have a good outcome many times. And so, like I said, the life and death experiences, like for the company, aren't the same as like downrange, but they felt really real at the moment and they were very emotional. So I think Chris and I did a good job of getting through all that and uh, proud of where we got in the end. So I just want to thank you very much for sharing your story today, Greg. And uh, you don't often get a deep dive into someone from beginning to end of creating a company and creating that journey also with their military experience and West Point experience from you. So thank you very much. Yeah. They, thanks for the opportunity, Joe. Like, I really appreciate again, what you're doing for our class and look forward to hearing other stories and hopefully reconnect with a bunch of people. So. Awesome. Till duty is done. <laughs> Till duty is done. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.